What up, Pooch? What up, what up? How you doing? Good, good. Coming to you live from Istanbul in an Airbnb. Indeed. And uh, Los Angeles, same place as always. It's pretty crazy how we're literally on opposing sides of the world and we could just have a normal conversation, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you think about it in a in a strictly 3D sense, you are you are a few thousand hundreds a few tens of thousands of miles beneath me. Yeah. Like b- between us is like tons like thousands of miles or tens of thousands of miles of just lava and this iron melt molten iron and just like we're just bypassing all that and talking shit yeah. on a on a video call. Also on on a strictly like, you know, 3D analysis basis we are we are our butts are closer to each other than our heads that's, that's a good point that's a very good point hey if we <laughs> by if, a matter of two feet if, if each of us get a piece of toast and we just like threw it on the ground right now we can make the uh, the earth sandwich yeah we could earth yeah. sandwich hot mm-hmm. iron molten core Here's, here's, a, here's a thought experiment. How many calories do you think the earth would be? I don't know. Does dirt yeah. have calories? It has to have calories. If dirt didn't have calories, it would have already been a trend here. Yeah, so they'd people, be eating it. Yeah, people would do like dirt detox juice cleanses. And yeah, I think I've actually seen some. I walked by creation the other day and yeah. Okay, I'm afraid to ask. What's creation? <laughs> it's... it's um. I I, can't, I don't know whether I should describe it as like a salad bar or a juice store or something like that, but it, it sells just all organic, green, vegan stuff. All right, it's already so, boring. Um, but speaking of <laughs> speaking of a, a salad, juice, green, whatever the hell, um, mm. re- remember that place that we used to go to all the time, um, Soup Plantation. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I of course we'd go plantation. there. We'd go there telling telling ourselves, which is by the way the greatest casualty of COVID. But we'd mm. go there telling ourselves. Uh, that we're there for the healthy options, and then we end up getting pizza and dipping it in like broccoli cheese soup or whatever, broccoli cheddar. That, that sounds yeah. disgusting, but it's truly, truly delicious. It is the best food I think I've ever had, and the fact that like there's so much of it, and you just go back and forth and back and forth, yeah. and we wouldn't be able to fit in the car afterwards on the drive back. Yeah. Like, that was <laughs> exactly good. that that honestly defined the first couple of months of of like when the whole COVID stuff started kicking yeah. off. Yeah, but here's the thing. I, I do remember the early days of when COVID started kicking off and you and I used to sit there and we'd get like one alert after the next from CNBC on our phone. And it would just be like, you know, Dow down a thousand points, Dow up a thousand points, Dow down a thousand points. And at this point, there was like, you know, three and a half cases in Seattle and people were acting like the asteroid was confirmed on a you know direct trajectory with Earth. Mm-hmm. It, it was... Um, it was crazy. And then it's just like, oh, just two week lockdown and everything will be normal again. It's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. I but- I dug back on my timeline and I saw um like a tweet that I sent out when we first started. And I was like, day one of the two week lockdown, I'm waiting for my microwavable kebabs to be done. And uh damn, like that two week turned into just an extended spring break and then turned to Zoom classes, then turned into me pounding the piano in my room while you laugh your ass off in the living room. <laughs> and then it turned into your lease running out and us living at the Hotel Hilton. Remember that one? Oh, by yeah. LAX? Yeah. We had a robot bring us toilet paper every day. Yeah, that was funny because apparently we were like too radioactive for human staff to deal with. 
Yeah, um, yeah pretty much. But here's the thing. Like the, those early days of COVID, I will, I will never forget that. And not, at uh, all, yeah. not just for what COVID was, but how it like, you know, just like blew up my professional career for a little while. And I thought all had gone to hell. But what's funny yeah. is, and we're recording this, by the way. Um, so it, 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 was it like yesterday or the day before we first heard about the Omicron? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Omicron, Omicron variant. From, uh, yeah. I'm not sure if it's Southern Africa or South Africa, but from that that region, yeah. Well, it, it was first identified there. Whether it first you know, evolved there, I don't know. But it was first identified right. by South African health authorities. And the thing is, so, you know, I got on a plane here to Istanbul, Turkey a little while ago, only because I was going stir crazy at home. And I need to go someplace. Mm-hmm. It, it's it, as soon as I get here, I get the alert on my phone saying like, oh, the, the person who tested positive in Belgium had come in through Turkey. And I'm like, okay, great. Awesome. <laughs> so when I was in LA, when everything locked down last year, it was, I mean, I had not moved to LA. I was there visiting Pooch. Mm-hmm. And then and you know, while I was visiting Mo, it was apparently the day before my flight that everything locked down, and it looked like like airplanes would never take off again for a while. Yeah, it remember was, that? Yeah, and now I'm sitting here, it's like, okay, what's the probability that now that people are shutting out the southern part of Africa from you know most of its air links to the rest of the world, what's the probability that happens again? And somebody says like, oh, it, it came through Turkey, and that's the area of. Uh, that's the problematic region. And now we got to cut that off too. And I just end up getting stuck in Istanbul for another six months. My first thought is yay. <laughs> um, my second thought is I really hope I can stay in this exact Airbnb for another few months. Cause if I, if I have to, then I will. And it's, it's a really nice one, by the way, mm-hmm. but um, I'm like very close to Galata tower. If you're familiar with the region. Um, oh yeah. 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 yeah, yeah well, like it's the glass street is yeah. Yeah. It's the glass street is like literally just a couple minutes from the door. Um, Jeez, it's beautiful. Yeah, but but back to the point, which is you know this this COVID uh, part two, part three, part four. Like apparently, there's more versions of COVID than there are Fast and Furious movies, <laughs> and it, it's starting to get people to wonder. It's like, yo, is this is this going to play out again, man? Yeah, I it's it's brought up like I think it's it's bringing up most people's like internal PTSD of like. Oh no, like here we go again. Like shit's going to shut down. We're going to be at home. We're going to have to go to virtual again and people are getting scared. But at the same time, you know, not to, you know, kind of going against my nature and being a little optimistic here. Um, people, like, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of the, the reports from South Africa come out, the, the health examiners, and they're all saying that, you know, there's mild symptoms. I think with enough vaccinations, we should be good enough. And if people get that booster shot, um, people just can continue with life as normal as possible. Not really fully normal, but, um, but, but here's the thing, even if that were absolutely factual, if this turns out to be, I'm not saying it is, but I'm saying if this particular version of COVID turns out to be a total nothing burger, it's mm-hmm. not going to stop a lot of people from totally shutting down for like a week or two. So Morocco has already announced that they're going to do that. Um, already like there are effects on the markets, like, you know, the, the Dow took a massive shit a couple of days ago. Uh, a yeah. couple of days ago, um, the oil markets are down. That's dragging down equities in the Middle East. Um, mm-hmm. So here, here's the thing. I was actually having a discussion with a portfolio founder um, a little while ago. And we kind of, not a little while ago, a couple hours ago. And and we brought this up. It's like, dude, what is the, what is the probability? You know, not, not to be a total hypochondriac, but what is the probability that this is going to play out again? And we got to go right back into pivot mode. Ooh. 
Yeah, I could I could see how a lot of industries who were hit hard by that first wave are thinking that right now. They're like, what 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 should we do if this thing blows up again? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, March of 2020. I mean, you remember you were there, like you know the calls I was having all hours of the night. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it was you know I, I had a number of portfolio companies like where I previously worked and as well as my own. People either just absolutely dropped dead or they went to the moon. And there was mm-hmm. kind of very little in the middle. Like, you know, kind of, you kind of knew where everyone was going to um, end up, right? Yeah. And I mean, now that I've had a year and a half to reflect on what went down, I get to sit here in the postmortem and try to uh, piece together the, the reasoning or at least some kind of theory of mine as to why some people flourished and some people just kind of dropped dead. And now that we're having these conversations again, I'm starting to think like, okay, let's see how much of that is still relevant in the face of the probability of take two of all this and um, how much of that was just kind of overfitting the model to what I had seen in March, April, May, June, 2020. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, so 308 uh, ventures really only kind of began like investment activities or really kind of actively looking at decks uh, like a, like a month ago, less even. Mm-hmm. Um so the thing is like we have without getting into details like a number of different like of capital that we can tap into in order to pursue things in different geographies mm-hmm. and um which by the way has meant that i've had a couple hundred discussions with a, a bunch of founders and a bunch of geographies in the last couple of weeks only because i'm super trigger happy and i, I want to make a deal for the first time in a while mm-hmm. um so at the time of this recording our portfolio is still at zero we're still kind of courting things but just you know Given what I had discussed with some of these founders and also my experiences of 2020, what's really stuck out to me is the fact that the people who fared the best were the people who did not have extremely asset-heavy operations. Um, It was the people whose teams comprised primarily of tech talent. And, you know, if that extended to the founders as well, that was usually a plus if you had super technical founders. The third group was... um, people whose products appealed to countless geographies and not necessarily a particular group with a particular feature in a particular place. Right. Yeah. It seems like you just, with those three points, so just to make sure I got them right. So no asset heavy operations, team comprised mostly of technical talent and product that was kind of geography agnostic and covered a lot of areas around the globe. Um, that seems to be a very great description of just a software slash SaaS company, like one with not a lot of hardware, not a lot of boots on the ground, and where most of the workforce that builds a product can just work from the safety of their homes. Yeah, yeah. But here's the thing. Sometimes the best executed pivot in the time of extreme downturn is one that simply keeps the company alive and doesn't necessarily keep it in super growth mode, which you know VCs are typically expecting it to perform um, or how they're expecting it to perform during normal times, right? right. So if, if you do the impossible just to keep the company's head above water um, at a time like the early COVID shutdowns, then mm-hmm. that in and of itself is just this magnificent achievement. Um, look, I'll, I'll give you an example. So like, I, I knew of a startup that was, uh, I'm, I'm not going to name them, but let's just say they were substantially similar to Shutterfly in terms of their business model. Okay. Um, their business model kind of depended I mean, they didn't have as many product offerings as Shutterfly um, at their peak, but th- their business model depended on families wanting to print their vacation photo- photos, um, both on photographic prints as well as some items, like a handful of items. 
Um, mm-hmm. And that business model was very deeply intertwined with the fact that, you know, families used to take family vacation in the summertime, in the wintertime at certain times and come back and then they'd want photos printed for the house or whatever. Oh, just um, so just to be clear, so that they're, they're, they're kind of a definition of an asset heavy operation, because I'm guessing those printers were all like in-house and they were like they were in charge of the machinery that was printing all the stuff that yeah. they'd sent to the families. Now, now, normally people like Shutterfly, the size of Shutterfly, who Apollo Global, I think, owns now as a PE and delisted them. When you're that size, you own the kind of photo manufacturing facilities. All these smaller players, and there's like a billion of them all over the place. Um, the, those guys typically don't own it. They just kind of outsource that work. Okay, Interesting. So with these, with, with a particular group I'm talking about, outsource was not really an option just because there was no reliable outsource outsourcing firm anywhere near them. So they had to bring it in-house to maintain quality, mm-hmm. even though they were, they were smaller than the people who typically would do that. Um, it, you know, as you can imagine, like, you know, these are purpose-built machines. They, they don't exactly do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll give you an example. Like if you have a machine that, you know, puts photos on mugs, then that's all that's going to do. And it's not really a cheap machine. Um, oh, yeah. And the yeah. ongoing costs of operating the thing are actually quite high as well. And the inks may be hard to find. And there's a number of complications that would stop the average Joe from doing this, right? So right. <clears throat> um, you'd imagine for, for, for people like them, it would be near impossible to, to pivot. Mm-hmm. Uh, ever, you know, having... Having to to create your own photographic software and you know internal automation to make sure this goes smoothly, and that they can churn out the amount that they want to churn out, as opposed to what an offline uh, what an offline operation would do, and they would produce maybe four or five times what an offline operation would do with the exact same machinery. Um, this implies that you are in command of a fairly large base of software engineers, and luckily for them, that was the case. So again, that goes back to my point of most of the team being comprised of technical talent. Um, the company kind of fought back by, by pivoting to gifting. So instead of specifically photographic prints that would be printed at certain times of the year and be mainly vacation photos and yada, 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 they just pivoted to gifting as a whole. And they cut a number of deals um, with people whose e-commerce channels weren't as affected during this time of year so that they can actually maintain contact with customers and therefore maintain order flow. So it seems that what they did was with a single pivot, not only were they able to use these very directed machines for another purpose, which is very, very difficult to do in, in and of itself, but they were also able to, in some sense, like of, of what I'm putting together, get rid of seasonality of the product because gifting is very, like if, if what they originally had in their business model was they wanted to s- send families pictures or printed pictures of their trips. Um, it seems like, all the business like racked up and or racked up in the summer and then just died for the rest of the year. But what they did with gifting is they were able to kind of evenly disperse that, which is, you know, good if anything, especially in a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, part of the, part of it is really just being able to read a room. I mean, think of a comedian, um, you know, kind of delivering or, or kind of doing their content on stage. And then they realize that it's kind of, you know, it bombs, right. Mm-hmm. But there are ways to salvage that and actually get the room lively again and, and, and get them back and, you know, get them back in the mood. So, That's true. The, you know, this, this particular startup, much like the comedian on stage who's bombing, only has a particular amount of time to recover and uh, get to a more, you know, kind of favorable positioning. 
So the asset heavy department, really, what they quickly pivoted from the prints and the photo books to more household items and things that they could execute with the same machinery with very little, uh, you know, cost or, or upgrades necessary. So people, you know, the way they read the room was that they saw that people were homebound, right? And a lot of these, um, you know, the businesses that benefited from people deciding to uh, kind of remodel their home, um, they're really in the same category as them in terms of there's just one more item that somebody who is in the refurbishing mindset is going to purchase. So you'd be surprised how much business you can do, for example, just selling baby items to pandemic parents and uh, selling items that look good on, say, the mantle if you're about to tear apart your wall and put up a new mantle, right? Yeah. And the interesting thing is they found that their universe of buyers extended far beyond where they had originally focused. So they were starting to get orders from really all across the world. Places, I mean, I saw the list of orders at one point and they were coming in from like the Solomon Islands and then Canada and then Greenland and then Argentina. And when in reality, most of their business was being done between Europe and Southern Europe and the Middle East, North Africa. So, Interesting. So I guess a question from my end would be, how come when they pivoted and went to normal household items instead of instead of just i'm guessing what they were like coffee table books of of memories of trips mm -hmm. yeah. how how was that pivot um oh how did that pivot kind of unlock a global market like that well here's the thing the pivot that was intentional was the product mix mm -hmm. right the pivot the pivot was that was totally unintentional was the tam and the intended consumer oh and yeah frankly i think it's wise to assume that it would always change with a pivot, mm -hmm. but you know, being able to actually to continue to capitalize on, on that is an art in and of itself. So for example, they found that um, items that had included uh, text, for example, um, it was absolutely necessary to start customizing the, um, the actual product page for the markets that you intended to operate. So for example, if I have um, one app that happens to attract people to upload their photos and then have them printed in photo books. People who mm -hmm. spoke English as a second language had absolutely no problem uh, continuing to use the app, the English app, um, or at least they did not witness any significant ne negative effects from not having, for example, an Italian app in Italy. Right. But when it came to you know items in the home, and you wanted people's names with particular messages on it, and things in print, and things you know engraved and kind of put around the house. All of a sudden, having it in your primary language made you know a lot more sense for the consumer. So, not having it, not having that option, um, would have cost the company the sale. And so, they moved from one kind of super app that was sold everywhere, uh, or actually did the selling for them everywhere, if you think about it, to moving to geo-targeted apps and 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 your kind of localization. Um, this was sort of unforeseen as a result of a product shift, but it is what ultimately happened and allowed them to continue to grow. Now, I should note that the growth was not what it was pre-pandemic, but it most definitely kept the business's head above water and put it in a position to execute um, you know, much wider scoped uh, later on after, uh, after the pandemic, if after the pandemic is even a concept anymore. Um, yeah. So you know, this business now, with COVID beginning to rear its ugly head, again, hopefully not as bad as what it was in the past. Again, when we're recording that, while we are recording this right this second, we have actually no idea how this is going to go. Um, but in the event, God forbid, this gets as, as ugly as it did in early 2020, um, the game plan for how to survive is still there.
Yeah. I think, I think that's the very important part here is that like you or a lot of founders heading into this right now who were hit heavy and were able to stay afloat during, you know, during the pandemic up until this point, because it's not really over. Um, looking at headlines that are, that are reminding them of March, 2020, they have the past 18 months as like the most powerful tool to kind of fall back on of like, right. What did I do last time? How did that affect my business? How can I do it right now? And I think the, you know, we, we can see a lot of the, like, here's the interesting part about it. It's not only the tiny startups that got affected by this because, you know, one of the biggest examples was what, um, uh, Airbnb got hit pretty heavy. I know like a lot of the ride sharing industry got hit or got like really, really, um, uh, screwed in some sense, simply because they had to like sit down and like rethink their entire business model. Um, yeah, just tons of examples out there of just wanting to do specific things and and like wanting to pivot into different things to stay afloat. And it just it's amazing how little um, the pandemic cares about how much revenue you're making. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, I think every founder at some point or another has kind of played that mind game of like, hmm, I wonder if I'm ever going to be in a position where pivoting is a matter of life and death for me, and it becomes an actual reality as opposed to a, as opposed to just a thought experiment. Um, the, the bizarre thing about pivoting during the pandemic versus pivoting before is when you pivoted in the past, a pivot was never seen as a temporary measure. A pivot was a fundamental change, a shift in the way the business operates and the way the founder thinks about the continuity of the business going forward. I mean, you, you didn't pivot pre-pandemic only to go back to your original business plan when things got better or whatever. Um, right. Pivots during the pandemic were kind of thought of entirely different, differently and in a way that was totally unprecedented for a startup, which is now that I have to very wildly, rapidly shift what this business was built to do. And the pivot is coming not from a failure of our execution or a failure to attract capital, but because of a shift in the way human beings operate as a result of a disease. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, again, not really in the startup playbook and not anything you go over in business school. Um this pivot was sort of a license for a lot of founders to execute a brand new vision that may have just been an idea kind of going around in their mind and bring it to the real world as sort of an experiment to, to see whether this secondary idea is somehow qualitatively better than the original idea that the startup was built on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think most of the times, a lot of the pivots that result in very, very dark eras like this one or the past 18 months at least always result in, you know, battle tested or, or, or well vetted ideas and business models that pop up that result in just way more successful businesses. I think um, biggest example being, you know, when, when COVID first started kicking off and we noticed all the CNBC headlines of, you know, shit hitting the fan and then, uh, you, you and I specifically going to yogurt land and just playing the CNBC radio and going, Oh shit, no oh, shit. And just eating our, what was it? Chocolate, ch- chocolate. Oh, vanilla shit. Frozen oh no. Extra Kit Kat, please. <laughs> oh shit. Yeah. Get to need, get to need some more gummy bears. The Dow's down 500. Um, do you no, remember, but, do you remember um, when they would actually put yogurt for us and they would be acting like it's some, I, I don't know, some like nuclear waste and they can't get anywhere near it until they serve it to us. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Sir, please stand behind the boundary and point at the gummer bears you like. <laughs> it was, it was like, yeah, they had almost hazmat suits. I, I think it was just like the a visor short of a hazmat suit. They yeah. like 
it it made it made it feel like what we were getting is like ten thousand dollars because it was behind walls and all that and like yogurt. They were as shielded as the place. people who swabbed my nose, basically. <laughs> Pretty much, but hey, hey, yogurt, frozen yogurt's a serious business. I I underestimated them. So, um, but uh, so so going back to the point, I mean that's that's like, that's kind of like the number one thing of like I remember when when two thousand and eight happened. Well recalling from now i was nine at the time but um everyone used to say like oh when the economy shit the bed last time airbnb came up uber came up and you have a lot of these Mm -hmm. good battle-tested businesses that are able to survive very difficult times because they were created during difficult times and that's kind of what we're noticing right now actually with a lot of the changes that you know from big tech all the way down to companies that were just ideas at the beginning of the pandemic, abstract, uh, my startup included, Um, everyone was able to kind of battle test and make their business models orders of magnitude harder or, or that, you know, that is, uh, it's a, it's a very common narrative of, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, around when shit hits the fan is the best time to deploy capital because that's, that's the situation that separates the boys from the men. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that anymore because it's sexist, whatever, but I think my point is made. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. separates the women from the girls maybe also, but, uh, That's a good one. The, I like that. yeah, you know, the, the, the point is it's this, um, this polarizing event that shifts you to either end of the spectrum of dead or superstar. Yeah. Um, I, so, the, so the question is, did that just happen to a bunch of startups that otherwise would not have faced that kind of polarizing event, if not for, for COVID? In other words, did we push a lot of crappy ideas into superstardom simply because of the advent of COVID? Like this happy accident for everyone's value cap or evaluation. I it, I, yeah, so I, I wouldn't really label it as a as a as a happy accident that you know, happened to push crappy ideas. I think I think the startups with the crappy ideas actually just shit the bed and just sunk during COVID. Yeah. Um, or sank. I don't know. I'm, I'm fobbing out right Sunk-ined. now, but sinked. <laughs> um, Sinky doodles. But uh. Sinky doodles, yeah, they right. they sinky doodled. Um, so the the, the startups that that sinky doodled were, were, were a little different. But what what I would say is that um, there's there's been a lot of new products that have come out during the pandemic, adjusted to the pandemic, that were were how can I put this? Kind of like just like I said, battle tested. Like mm-hmm. um, Lord knows, there's like say for the sake of example that there's a company that deals with logistics. And when shit hit the fan March 2020, they pivoted to something else. Well, that pivot must that like, could have saved them from the supply chain crisis that we're going through right now. Mm-hmm. So, what, what the the point I'm trying to get to specifically is like maybe changes in business models during COVID helped save a lot of startups from potential like life or death situations mm-hmm. with more crises after covid and and will continue to save them from other crises that pop up well i mean every founder is now well versed in crisis management right just by virtue of being having been a founder at that time um exactly perhaps there will be you know they'll come to their next crisis with a sense of result with a sense of calm and and uh uh rationality that they otherwise mm-hmm. would not have had if not for the perspective given to them by covid also another thing is you know, startups tend to die a relatively slow death, you know, like startups mm-hmm. don't just like poof in a month. Uh, usually right. it's just like a, a series of internal issues and errors that snowball into what eventually kills the business months down the line. But mm-hmm. this was like, a, you know, 
surprise, fuck you. Your startups are relevant. What are you going to do? You have two minutes to save it. Go, 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 go. Um, yeah. You know, I got my own war stories um, that I'm happy to share, but uh, I think mm-hmm. I think one more of mine and people are going to ask me to have a separate startup, a separate podcast rather. So, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, but, I mean, I know we've, I know we've said it in previous shows, but that was the original idea of this one, right? Talking about war stories and shit when, when shit hits the fan. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it was not my war stories because I'm not a host and I'm just a crybaby and nobody wants to hear it. <laughs> right. But I, I did have a question though. So, and th- this is more of like a VC centric or specific question because the one thing I noticed, um, and I'll touch on this a little later, but, you know, abstract at the, at the point in, in, in March, 2020 was extremely early stage. Like we were just me, uh, two of my other co-founders and, and just an idea really we were blueprinting stuff, but um, the one thing we heard, at least when uh, shit started hitting the fan, was a lot of VCs went into crisis management and they went into this like triaging their portfolios and seeing what's what can I help, what's going to die. Um, what you said was previously or like just a moment ago was um, when shit hits the fan is usually the best time for a VC to start investing. So, in in your sort of world. Um, what did you notice in back in March, 2020 with like your VC network? Did you see that people were just, you know, cutting off all sort of deal flow and looking at their portfolios and seeing what they can save? Or was it more of a, everything's on sale. Let's just throw money and see what sticks. Uh, the everything's on sale. Let's throw money thing didn't happen until a while after. And I distinctly remember it not starting until the Andreessen clubhouse deal. When they figured oh. like, hey, you know, if something can still be worth a hundred million dollars this early, you know, given mm-hmm. what's going on outside, then maybe maybe we should start cutting deals. I feel like that was the inflection point for that. But prior to that point, I had I do remember um, at least you know two friends who were not partners at their firm, but fairly senior, and not the ones making the decisions. And they spoke of the decision makers as if they were doctors who were deciding to amputate gangrenous limbs to save the patient. Wow. You know, it, it was it was very extreme. It was very listen. We don't have the time to worry about the shit, and like our winners are going to die. And with that, our fund, if we don't start, you know, focusing our time and our efforts and opening our address book to these people. So, given the people who are at the very bottom of the totem totem pole, let them starve. And it was a very kind of utilitarian, direct. Think of it like some I don't know, colonial general deciding to starve off a couple of villages. This is. This is the way they were approaching it. And the human element was totally lost for a second, but which is weird because it's happening at a time where the fragility of human life is in everyone's mind because COVID just came out of nowhere. And this invisible thing is now a real existential threat. Exactly. I mean, I don't know. The VC world has, has extremes in terms of uh, empathy and apathy coming from the same individual sometime. I mean, I mean, the, the, the funny thing about that is quite literally at one point, the U.S. was having, in terms of deaths, like a 9-11 every single day. Yeah. And, and people were just cool. Like, you, you scroll past that shit on Twitter, and it was, kind of, it was kind of crazy. Like, thinking of, you know, God forbid there's a death, like, in, with someone you know, your personal network, or anything like that, and it hits you hard, and knowing that that happens, like, two, two to 3,000 times a day is, like, kind of worrisome. But, but I think the, the, the point that I wanted to press on more specifically was, in in i like i think the very interesting position looking at it as an outsider looking at vcs as an outsider is i can see how additionally stressful it becomes because you have 
startups that need management for your med for your like major major winners um they might need they might need um some help some resources some capital of any sorts but then how does a relationship with the lps play out because i know for like from the vc horror stories that i've heard um which are very very limited the one thing i heard was when shit hits the fan lps like don't respond to capital calls and they usually become very they start triaging or like managing yeah. or looking at their own investments. So how does that reflect to the VC? And what, what do you think if you were a VC in that type of position where your LPs just won't give you capital to save your major winners? Like what, what's, what's the plan there? Well, to clarify, I mean, if they are actual LPs in the standard definition of that word, then they have no choice but to give me capital when I call it. Um, mm. Because, you know, the punitive, punitive effects of, of not, um, responding to a capital call can be severe. For example, it's not unusual for LPs to be forced to give up their LP position because they missed a capital call. In other words, they forfeit everything they've given up to that point. Um, yeah. Uh, also, if you're an LP with a history of a single you know, missed capital call, then word gets out, you know, news travels fast, and others will be notified to not bother fundraising with you. You know, Problematic LPs are a thing. Um, yeah, but uh, the LP position then, I mean, you're right. And when, when shit hits the fan, capital calls may be skipped. Uh, and typically LPs will be calling, wondering why you didn't take their money. Um, but if in situations like 2008, the LPs didn't call because they would much rather have that capital on their own books um, than have to, you know, they'd much rather have it on their own books for their own purposes than have to hand it over to some other manager. Um, the situation, well, the thing is, I did going back to the earlier part of your questions. So I, uh, I did not have LPs at the time. Um, so I can't speak from personal experience, but again, just the chatter here and there is, um, I think the LPs, well, first off the, the Q1 report that goes, goes out in the, you know, early days of Q2 or the early couple of weeks of Q2. Um, I think it was a bit of a joke in that every single Q1 report started with, we are well positioned to weather this storm as if this is what everyone had foreseen for years, you know, back when they closed the fund in 2016, 17, 18, whatever. Yeah. Um, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it kind of, it got to a point where the, the markdowns were going to be evident and there's no way VCs could spin it out with their standard BS. Mm -hmm. um, there's, I mean, there's no way they could spin the narrative. I mean, um, I think some LPs, had seen the polarization effect of the pandemic on uh, the valuations of the startups in the portfolio. Um, what had happened by and large is that the winners became super winners and the super winners became super, super, super winners. And oh, therefore yeah. the losses were covered. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not, I can't really think of a particular GP in my network that I can talk to who said that the pandemic wrecked my net worth and I'm still paying for it. And that sort of a thing. Everyone's fund was better off. Everyone's fund hit their intended mark. Interesting. Cause I feel like it's, it's a, what was the term that we it was used for that? Like early in 2020, I think it was um, a case shaped recovery of like everything, either shit, like the ones that were either mm. medium or in, in like kind of the yellow or red zone of your portfolio kind of shit the bed and you, as pointed out multiple times previously, like this industry is one that quietly buries its dead. So mm -hmm. they just quickly kind of went on, founders moved on to something else. But then the ones in the green zones kind of separated into a green zone and a mega green zone and a mega mega green zone where you have 
everything in that area kind of blew up and the as as a vc like that's what you paid attention to basically um well i mean that's that's what made my portfolio I mean, my, yeah. personally you know so right and again it's not an atypical story but uh yeah yeah i think so that, that's a very interesting part about looking at it from the vc's perspective because you know, founders at least do have to answer to both, um, you know, if, if it's an early team or even a big team, employees that need to worry about job security. And at the same time, um, you need to answer to customers, you need to answer to VC, like your investors, advisors, maybe. Um, but it, it feels like everyone in that chain of LP to VC to founder to employee was either worrying about their own position, worrying about what they were managing or worrying about the other people in that chain, if that makes any sense. It was always like, a, how am I going to explain this to different people in this chain? Dude, everybody has a boss and everyone was kind of afraid of their boss at that moment. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly what it was. Because, you know, even the LP, by the way, if they're like funds of funds, were afraid of, you know, the endowment that put money in their funds of funds breathing down their neck when they had to explain this. So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I mean, I think the only people who slip that example are like angels, but even angels have to answer up to their, even angels are going to have to answer up to their bank account and uh, yeah. explain what happened that quarter. That's very true. I think, I think the interesting part is like, yeah, I, I just, uh, going back to like what this podcast should have originally been covering, I really hope that someday we could just, that aspect of startups kind of becomes normalized so we can actually start interviewing people about this time and kind of go like, what the hell happened? Like, what, <laughs> yeah. how'd you react to it? How, what, what did you do? Because uh, I think, yeah, there, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this type of stuff because, you know, and, and this is, kind of speaking to an analogy or metaphor that you spoke of uh just just now but it is it is kind of like you do have to pretend like you're a general in a war like mm -hmm. people's livelihoods are in your hands and you have um commanders to respond to and you're fighting something that's you know a disease and it's it's constantly killing people and it's like the, the, it, it adds a lot of stress on your plate on top of just being a normal founder yeah. but yeah it's yeah Ben Horowitz of uh, Andreessen Horowitz. Mm -hmm. um, ben Horowitz wrote an, a now infamous book in the Valley called uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Ah, uh, yeah. It's on my list. Uh, you, you need to get to it if that's on your list. But oh, yeah. um, there was a particular part of the book where he discussed the difference between peacetime CEOs and wartime CEOs you know, and or leaders in general. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's a number of core differences in the way that individual acts. And they're not talking about two different individuals, but rather one individual at different times and points in that in that company's history. So, mm -hmm. you know, peacetime CEO tries to build consensus and try to get everyone at the table, having them feel like they've pitched into what ends up being the company's mission. Wartime CEO delegates and sets clear goals and communicates them to ensure that they uh, that these goals are are, are achieved. Um, peacetime CEO. Um, how do I put it? So, you know, peacetime CEO is all about like, you know, outreach and making everyone feel inclusive because generally, you know, your, your company is not in a, in an existential type of situation. Um, the result, uh, the potential outcome of the decisions you make over the next, you know, say week or two at any point in a history, in the history of a startup, 
um, when it's not in a life or death type situation is not likely the life or death of the company over the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, consequential things tend to appear extremely consequential right at the outset. So, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And I think I've, I've, so, uh, you know, having only startup experience or just being a founder through a pandemic, uh, before I started, before like we we started Abstract, I have been told multiple times that from friends, from advisors, from anyone really that you know there's there there is such a thing as being too nice to be a founder, um, and and that's that's a specific. So I didn't check out the book, but that's a specific snippet that I wanted to refer to multiple times because it's you know there there's the warmth and empathy part of letting people know that it's cool if you're an employee and you. You think you're going to lose your job? Don't worry about it. You won't um, as yeah. long because if you lose your job, I lose my job. So mm-hmm. especially in a pandemic. But the 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 part that you need to wrap your head around is like, yeah how how do you communicate the fact that okay we were all like linking arms, singing singing kumbaya, and now all of a sudden I have to turn on to like I have to turn into this you know fifties boss like throwing papers at your desk, going take care of this shit because I have more important stuff to worry about um you know that's the the best founders the best founders i've known honestly not to Mm -hmm. cut you off but they're Mm -hmm. usually extremely kind-hearted people and willing to share everything they've learned over the course of their startup experience with you um usually well-spoken not not arrogant you know not full of themselves but almost all of them have this ability they have this switch inside them which they can throw which makes them ready to bludgeon you with a shovel if necessary to save their business right yeah i i love that because it's it's i i've noticed it as well with you know talking to founders on 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 my end who've dealt with like they could be my age and they they're running like some yc backed company and everything and it's it's funny when we talk about normal stuff it's like yeah that's cool that's all right and then mm-hmm. the minute we get into like the product or like the specifics about his product or her product but something it, it's kind of like talking to an athlete off of the field and on the field when they go from uh yeah i just i, I might have missed that ball i might have done that to like shut up i'm trying to focus <laughs> i will kill you if you get in my way um those the, those are like the, the the fun types of conversations i like to have because yeah. then someone i like what i love to watch and even looking at it introspectively about how i behaved or how i reacted I'd love to revisit the same timeline that we did, but looking at it from the founder's perspective, not of a VC's VC's perspective, looking at a startup. Mm-hmm. So, like the one very important thing to note here is that um, on a on a meta perspective, and that's not meta the company, but like metaphysical perspective, um, we're not really done with COVID. Like any of the previous yeah. variants are still kind of running around, screwing people up, making people drink lemon because they can't juice because they can't taste for some reason um bleach on the rocks yeah (laughs) bleach on the rocks um is that a thing that's that's i'll be worrying if that's a thing um but uh i i hope not to but um that could be a founder thing i don't know lord knows um so so this could be blamed on a ton of stuff whatever it may be the the reason i kind of bring it bring it up is that we still can see through scars which industries have been hit by by 
COVID the hardest simply by like observing their recovery rates. So kind of like we already mentioned back in March, 2020, like the main industries we saw on CNBC, Twitter, and most news sources where shit hit the fan and companies were shutting down left and right were hospitality, travel, and I'd say most enterprise SaaS, speaking from like people in our personal networks who had to shut down yeah. stuff because large corporations and large deals were 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 uh, shot down because the company needed to cut down on unnecessary spending, for example. Yep. Um, so the both revenue, like looking at those industries specifically, both revenues and VC money heading into those verticals became very hard to come across. But what I kind of wanted to do, just like I mentioned, was zoom in on the founder's perspective of it and see if their startup survived, what they can do to best prepare for a potential second wave. If, you know, knock on wood, this never happens, God forbid, but if Omicron mm-hmm. becomes, you know, kind of rewinds us back to March, 2020 and like vaccines aren't a shit. This is the second black swan. We, the, that was up and down a thousand points. We can't, uh, stress eat at soup plantation in, in, in yogurt, yogurt. Land, I will so. literally move to like an Island off of <laughs> in Thailand. I, I think I'm going to join you, honestly, as long as there's a, a sturdy Wi-Fi connection, I, this, no, no literally yeah, just, I, I just need Wi-Fi and a functional toilet. Everything else is negotiable. <laughs> I'm not living through this crap again. Yes. Yes. Functional toilet is, is optional. I will use coconut husks if I have to, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think, I think the main thing is like, I actually, one last thing I still remember, do you remember the, the Viking beard that I grew during the pandemic? I went like four to six months without shaving. I mean, you still look like that, but yeah. <laughs> kind of no, but, but I, I remember, um, I, I opened up photo booth on my Mac in a while and, uh, I saw a picture that I took in like, I think right before we moved out of the apartment when my lease was up and like my, I'd say my beard like hit my chest. Like it was, it was, it was big. I don't know how I lived with that thing. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Good times. Face mop. Yeah. Fa- pretty much. Yeah. Is it's uh leftovers. It just kept caught leftovers for me to, to, to have for later. Um, anyways. So, so like going back to that era or like that time, we were kind of fortunate because abstract in this, in the sense was way too early stage. So kind of like I mentioned before, it was just me and my two other co-founders, Patrick and Matthew, and we didn't really have a product. Each of us co-founders had just graduated and we just moved back into our parents' homes where we kept working on it until we were able to all move in together in July of this year. So on top of that, abstract specifically works in a weird blurry line between gov tech and civic tech. So we're in the business of kind of working with organizations that track and monitor legislation among other data types, which doesn't, it's not the type of stuff that dies down during a pandemic. If anything, it starts yeah. acting up and people start paying closer attention to it. Yeah. Um, so it's impact had we have been large at the time and with a product might not have been as bad, but who knows, of course, like this is not, this is not the type of shit you can, you can, you can, you can predict, of course, but the, the fundamental concept that I kind of want to touch on and just quick, quick disclaimer, uh, uh, excuse the French, but I am a chuckle fuck. So I am a, not a seasoned founder with tons of startup experience behind. I'm still trying to figure shit out, but this What's isn't a chocolate necess- fuck. No, a, a, a chuckle fuck. <laughs> a what? A, a chuckle fuck. C-H- Is this a Gen Z thing? I'm not going to understand. No, I've, I've heard. 
what the older people have called me a chuckle fuck. <laughs> oh, okay. I agree with them, whoever they are, but go on. But um, yeah, so th- this isn't necessarily me sitting you guys down and telling you what to do, but this is kind of like what I noticed in, 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 in the stuff that I, I realized. Um, but the, the, the kind of fundamental concept that I've picked up, picked up on this past like 18 months is that the most powerful handbook that a founder has in like facing typical uncertainty in an industry is always just history. Um, look at like instances, not even in business history, but history in general, where people thought they didn't have what it, t- what it takes. Um, they were put in positions that they were too small to fill the shoes of, and then they were able to learn stuff, pick stuff up, pick stuff up, use different um, approaches and, and whatever it may be to just learn that position, assume it, and then execute very, very well. So, in this instance, you don't need to look that far back in history, although I encourage you to do it because there's a lot of fun stuff back there. But any founder can kind of look back to March 2020 and really take an introspective look at where their company was back then. What were some signs of like shit starting to hit the fan? What they did to weather the storm? You can get a little technical here if you're an early stage company and see how a potential shutdown can affect revenues and how long you'd be able to survive for that. But one thing or like one flaw in that is that it assumes something that's very wrong, which is pretty much the first half of this episode, which is um, the assumption made here is kind of the strategy of the business can't change, which is obviously wrong. I think what's, what's very interesting is that pivots and shifts in business models is the one advantage of being a young lean company. So the one very interesting observation I had while I was eating all that soup plantation um, I don't know if it's an observation or just a, a hallucination because of all the sodium that we were, <laughs> we were eating, but um, the very, the, yeah, yeah. Um, but the very interesting thing that I noticed was it was all the smaller companies, at least the ones that weren't dying, that were like, okay, we've fundamentally changed our strategy and here's our new business model. Here's how we're going to make money. Here's a new type of product we're going to be building in most cases. But a lot of the big tech companies like, uh, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb um, are are the ones that had to like eat, eat shit a little bit, uh, and then Amazon and like the other companies. On the other hand, the they didn't they weren't really able to do that, right? Like the 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 most thing the the most they were able to do was just like start chopping off limbs and killing businesses that they felt was killing off like sub businesses that they thought yeah. weren't generating enough revenue. Yeah. It's interesting that you brought up Uber because I mean, look, generally speaking, the larger you are, the more asset heavy you are, the more likely you are to face difficulty navigating the shock as big as a lockdown, you know, with like an mm-hmm. indefinite lockdown, most definitely. Um, and by the way, when I say asset heavy, even if it's not on your balance sheet, I mean, Uber doesn't own any cars, but like, you know, those cars are sort of caught up in the way it operates and quickly shifting oh. their purpose or getting rid of them entirely is not that simple. Right. Um, you know, it, 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 Uber for the size that it was, it, it would never be able to quickly reinvent itself and reorganize capital and labor allocation and that kind of thing. That takes years for people to really do. I mean, if you're interested, and I won't go into this, but like look at how Kodak um, went from uh, being, uh, you know, a producer of photographic film to, you know, pharmaceuticals and chemicals. Um, oh, yeah. That took a very long time. That took a very long time. Um, actually, if not Kodak or like Fuji or Minolta or like you know, a, a number of them had kind of gone in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, 
anyhow, but Uber specifically, the company had thankfully been floated by their Uber Eats division, which actually did pretty good during the pandemic, as as did you know DoorDash and other competitors. Um, you know, it's true generally for all of delivery and e-commerce, and not necessarily owed to Uber's uh, you know extreme prowess or whatever. Um, what's important is you stay vigilant, you stay fluid, because um, you know opportunity can be found in some of the most dire of circumstances. But the larger you are, the more difficult it will be always. Yeah, I think looking at it purely from a systems perspective, it's just there, there's way too many moving parts to start moving that fast. Like once, if 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 the C-suite in like execs at, uh, at Uber basically went, okay, let's pivot our entire business model, then next thing you know, you're going to have an entire army of engineers in their late 20s making $500,000 a year going, well, well what am I going to do? And mm-hmm. Lord knows, you know, what type of effects golden handcuffs can have on people, but um, it's just way too many moving parts. And with, with that much accountability, uh, you you can't be as reckless as an early stage startup. I, I do have to say that because when you're young, the biggest, the, when you're young as a, as a company specifically, the biggest thing that you can do is basically go, um, you can leverage the relationships with all of your employees to go, all right, this isn't a boss. What I'm not going to release an internal memo or some bullshit. Let's all just hop on a Zoom call and talk about this because if we don't, we're going to sink. We're going to die. Um, and I think basically Which that's, is a great that's motivator. exactly... It is, it is really a great motivator. And it, it, the, the, the good thing about it is like the number one thing that everyone did was that's at least what, what we had to do on a couple of times, not specifically related to COVID, but when shit came close to hitting the fan, um, we, or, or like when we felt like a lot of our employees were getting stressed because of like upcoming deadlines or something like this, we just always hop on Zoom calls and we go like, what's up? And, and I think that's something that has kept our relation, like relationships very, very strong. Um, and like specifically speaking, I think both you and I, going back to the whole like main point of it, both you and I know or have gone through very large pivots that have turned out for the better. Um, and like, I'm not sure we, if we're allowed to mention any names, so I won't specifically, but you and I know a lot of people in our personal networks and we know a lot of startups who, when COVID hit, we weren't sure they were going to survive or weren't sure that we were going to survive. And then all of a sudden, one quick, like, what if email turned into a strategy, which turned into product market fit, which turned into uh, this massive like boom of 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 the business, generally speaking. Um, so so like the the blessing hidden in the curse that is this pandemic was in looking at it now with this wave coming up, um, the previous wave created so many new industries and locations that have boomed. So like the work from home industry, the crypto industry, the teleconferencing industry, VR, AR, AI, the list goes on. But yep. one of the biggest, biggest, like fun things that I'd love to hear your thoughts on, like especially from the MENA region's perspective, is Silicon Valley was successfully decentralized. So when you think Silicon Valley right now, you don't think uh, SF for the Bay Area always. You think yep. Mi- Miami, NYC, LA, moving into the Middle East, Dubai. Dubai is gathering a ton of attention right now and many other locations around the world. So yeah. What does this mean for basic, basically like prospective founders or for people, existing founders? You literally have no excuse to start building, uh, whether you're in Kuwait, whether you're in Saudi Arabia. You have no excuse Arabia. to not start building. Oh, right. You have no excuse to not start <laughs> yeah. okay. botched. I botched that part. Dang. Um, you just no, crapped but... on everyone's dreams listening to this, looking for inspiration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I, 
I, I could have done a worse job because I remember Elon Musk was like, uh, he was surrounded by by young wannabe founders and or would-be founders. And he said, um, some motivating words. If you need motivation, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you and, need motivation to do a startup, don't do a startup, uh, which I agree with. Startup. Yeah, yeah. If you need someone else pushing you, that's that's a problem. But yeah. um, but like that, that that's the whole point. I mean, you can speak on the Dubai part specifically, but um, really, right? Like the 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 first way the pandemic created so many new opportunities to where I think if Omicron again, God forbid, became this massive thing, uh, I think people are going to have a way more optimistic outlook on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, agreed. Um, look, uh, the more we decentralize, the better for everyone. Uh, and as much as I would absolutely love to go into that topic. Oh, by the way, before before we move on, um, we do have an interview coming up with someone who is actually deeply entrenched in the Dubai scene and with everything that's been happening there with respect to Web3 and crypto and DeFi. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually moved to Dubai from San Francisco uh, specifically wow. because, yeah, because the ecosystem was growing so vociferously over the last you know couple of weeks, couple of months, and it really looks mm-hmm. like it's going to be the Eastern home of Web3. And now that CZ... Uh, Chang Peng Zhao of Binance is making his home there. Um, you can definitely get a guarantee that more of the crypto ecosystem will be moving there. Um, the regulatory regimen in Dubai has actually been extremely welcoming um, to 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 the crypto devs and to cryptocurrency community. So I really think it's a it's a it's a place to look out for. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look out for some serious that. progress coming out of there. But. Indeed. Unfortunately, we are at roughly the end of time. Uh, it is approaching midnight here in Istanbul, and uh, oh, I have a long day of eating various grilled meats ahead of me. <laughs> and I have—I uh, just have laundry to do. Really, it's just past noon my time. So, whoa, it's kind of rock star, yeah, slow down. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We so we're recording this on Zoom right now, and Ziz, I don't yeah. know if you see the massive pile of clothes behind me, but that's. As, I thought well, it was I'm just your be room. <laughs> no. Yeah. Most of the time it's my room, but sometimes I take a look at it. It's like, hey, maybe I should throw a couple of these things in the washer, you know? Yeah. 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 No, this, this entire weekend. So, so yeah, not to point out the obvious, but it's Thanksgiving here. So um, both Matthew and Patrick kind of went back home and I had the entire house to myself this weekend. And mm-hmm. um, it's been interesting kind of like uh, going from, you know, living with founders and being, not shutting up about abstract and the startups and strategies and what to do and customers and all that stuff all, all the way to, okay. Uh, all of a sudden I have some time to kind of like drive around and cruise and do stuff. So it's been. All I can think of is how disgusting that apartment must be. <laughs> no, the good thing is like we're, we, we, uh, so I'm, I'm considered the, 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 the messy one in, 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 in this house uh, as really? always. Right. Yeah. No, really? they're, they're, <laughs> no, they 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 like to keep stuff uh, clean. Oh yeah, and then Pat I... is uh, he's basically OCD. I remember him. Um, <laughs> yeah, shout out Pat if you're listening. If you mean, hey Pat, one. what's up? <laughs> um, but right. yeah, that's uh, that's that's pretty much it. So, thanks everyone for listening again. Uh, as always, uh, you know, stay up to date with me and Aziz's episodes and posts and conversations and interviews on twitter by following at yeah. venture bros show um aziz and i's personal uh twitter accounts are in the bio if you want to give us a follow there yeah. we the 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 foundation of this episode was just the banter that our personal accounts have so 
keep an eye out for that as well. But uh, yeah, feel free to DM us any feedback, any um, if if you want to if you want to vent or just cuss at someone. We, we by can the take way, it. Um, uh-huh. I, I will I will put this out. Um, so in the early days of this podcast, we realized that the episodes with just me and Mo shooting the shit used to perform a lot better than the interviews. But we've been doing more and more interviews lately, and we've noticed a lot more people listen to the interviews. Um, see, the analytics software that we have does not allow us to pinpoint individual listeners and what their listening preferences are. But on a high level, um, just it, it looks like you know the, the interviews end up getting a lot more traction. So the thing is, we always we want to hear back from the fans. Like, if you want to let us know in our DMs, or maybe we should put together a poll on our on Twitter. Um, just tell us what you want. Do you want more of us? Do you want more interviews with a few people in the States, in Europe, in MENA, in Asia? Um, yeah. You know, we, we have our feelers out and obviously we don't want to interview people you don't want to hear from. Mm-hmm. Um, so please let us know. Indeed. Indeed. And I mean, I know a lot of the people who listen to us have well-built networks of a lot of people we've interviewed in the past are very, very well you know, connected. So if there's anything, if there's anyone that you want us to interview, um, I mean, feel free to send them our way. We, we, you know, we're always looking to expand our networks and talk Doors open, and, and just send it over. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, I guess that's also it Matthew Graham, Sino global. If you're still listening, happy to have you on the show. Absolutely. All right, guys. All righty. Wait, see guys, who else is here? All right, Mo. Guys. Bye. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> see ya.